Today's workplaces are increasingly toxic. It can feel like every semblance of humanity has been squeezed out by outdated rules. On Let's Make Work Human, we believe that companies can meet their mission and make a profit without squeezing the life out of people. How do leaders who care create unbreakable workplace cultures brimming with belonging, transparency, joy, flexibility, purpose, care, and results? This show has the answers. Walking the path of true people leadership requires unbreakable connections and real partnerships that debunk and demolish old habits. I'm May Long Rats. I go by May. I'm a millennial with a partner named Sam and a toddler named Crosley. I'm a determined optimist. I believe in the power of community and rest. I'm a cis Chinese mixed race woman. I was grown in the Mountain West. I'm an award-winning artist, a mother, a coach, and a DEIJ facilitator. I co-host the show with my friend, award-winning entrepreneur, best-selling author, baby boomer, culture expert, and beekeeper, Mo Carrick. Together, we're going to take a radical approach to liberating working mothers, abolishing toxic workplace cultures, and so much more. Join us for an irreverent and honest look at what it takes to make every workplace fit for human beings who work there. We're on a mission to restore humanity to work one magnificent people leader at a time. This show will warm your heart, challenge your thinking, and leave you laughing out loud. Good morning. Hi, Mo. Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm excited to talk to you about this. Our question today is, what artifacts of good business is it time to let go of? And what notions or things aren't really helping us anymore? Got any thoughts about that? Can we say all of it? <laughs> <laughs> Good. You have one hour. <laughs> That's all. We just we just answered it right then. Short one today. Yeah. All yeah. right. Good. <laughs> no, I mean that's not really true, right? Of course, there's some good things that work that work for business, but um, I feel like I I I've, I don't know about you, but I find that. I'm frequently in the situation of feeling as though the ways that businesses are running themselves are dated and not helping the people that work there, but we hang on to them. Like mm -hmm. we, we just hang on to these notions of what good business looks like, or I should say even not even business, but like good organization or good company. Mm -hmm. um, leadership. And I, yeah. And leadership yeah. and how teams are organized. And, you know, it's showing up, I think, very acutely right now in the what many are calling the great resignation, what we call the great reframe. Um, but there's it's like the things that didn't work before COVID-19 are really not working now. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing that comes out for me, that jumps out for me that I think isn't working anymore is this notion that you have to be in a building or in a particular workstation or in, you know, uh, in a place in order to be productive. Mm -hmm. You've kind of believed that for a long time though. Like you and I have been remote our entire relationship. Right. So this is not a new idea for you. It's not a new what, idea for me, but it's. What gave you an inclination in the beginning that that was well, not going to work? I think in our business, because we're consultants, we've always had the luxury of kind of being able to carry our work with us. So we haven't been like adherent to having to have a place. Although at times I felt pressure 
you know, back before you were working with us, we had an office, we actually had two offices and we had like three workstations set up in each. And it was just a huge PIA. Like (laughs) people were not there a lot. The office was empty, you know, and the one, I remember our, our office assistant at that time was there on her own alone. And she was devastated because she was lonely. Nobody ever came in, nobody checked on her because we were all traveling. So I think we're in a business where an office is just not really that necessary and doesn't serve. Not that we don't need spaces where we're each working. I don't mean to say that like having a place that you can work that's separate from home, I think is a good thing. But mm-hmm. I think that the but businesses and organizations hang on to this idea that like they have to maintain, they have to keep people together, you know, in a in a corral in order mm-hmm. to be functional. I mean, are you hearing do you have friends that have worked in offices like before COVID where now they're virtual? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would say that I think it's actually, there's some subtext to like, everybody needs to be in the office. And it's that if we cannot see you, we cannot control what you are doing. Right. Because there is a, there is a partner to being in the office at all times, which is that you need to work 40 hours. And if those 40 hours aren't ones I count, they don't count. Right. And they have to happen within the work week. You know, so there, there's like a, it's like a whole string of things holding hands, right? Like the four, four day work week does not sit in there very well the not being in the office doesn't sit very well in there the like getting 40 hours getting 50 hours 60 hours 20 hours whatever you work that week that doesn't sit in there very well you know um but i think it if i had to guess it has to do with this archaic like production line mindset well it's the the people i own yeah yeah yeah. it's the overseer model it's like i i have in order to have effective productivity i have to you know, I have to see you. And, you know, it's interesting, May, when I was in grad school, I don't know if you learned this in art school. <laughs> <laughs> go but go in, on. <laughs> but in organizational development school, they taught us about theory X and theory Y leadership, which was um, a theory that came out. I can't even remember who the developer of the theory was. I should know that. That's how I'm a failure at remembering. We'll look school. it up. It'll be in the show notes. It'll be a, don't worry. <laughs> But the idea was like the carrot and the stick, you know, like you yeah. can you can motivate people by incenting them with um, benefits and like good things and candy and carrots, or you can like punish them um, and have there be consequences. And I think in some ways, both the theory X and theory Y have to do with the idea that there is an overseer that, you know, it's sort of like, I'm sure you've heard me say this, it's the lay miserable image of what workers do. You know, I'm on a line, they're all, everybody's at their sewing machine and I have a whip, you know, and it's just so, it's so dated. And I think anybody who works in manufacturing lines today knows that it's dated where it's all about lean and continuous improvement and the front line are the ones making the decisions and, and, but yet we hang on to it when it comes to how do we design workers. And and of course, we're talking specifically about like workers that is professional, mm-hmm, white mm-hmm. collar in nature. And it's not true, you know, of course, in healthcare and retail, there's lots of sectors where we know we have to be in person. But for the workers that don't have to be in person, what is that? And I think you're right. I think it's an underpinning of control and authority. Um, mm-hmm. And also this feeling that if I'm not seeing you do the work, you know, you're not doing it right or you're not doing it well enough. Couple things about that. First one is, what do you think about it actually just being about not trusting your people? Mm. Number one. And do you think it's also just lazy leadership? <laughs> like I'll, <laughs> I'll say that, but like, it seems like lazy leadership to me to be like, if you're not here and I don't see you, then I cannot lead you. Yeah. That's a really good point. 
yes, I think trust, I think the story of trust of like, I can't, if I'm not watching you work, then I don't trust you. Now, nobody's saying that right now, though. Like, mm-hmm. So that's part one of what you're saying, because what people are saying instead right now in COVID is, in post-COVID is, you know, we need to have communities at work. And if we're all remote, we don't have community, which I agree with. I think that's true. I think we that's why hybrid is so powerful. We have to have some ways of coming mm-hmm. together. But that's not, I think, what's underpinning the anxiety about hybrid work. Um, I don't think it's that because I think mm-hmm. we can design around that. I think it's more of what you're saying, which is like, I don't trust you. I'm not confident that you won't be distracted or that you'll actually execute really well. Um, and then I think lazy leadership is a really good expression because it does take more effort if you're leading people that aren't where you're not, where you can't look over their shoulder and you can't say like, what are you doing today? There's less transparency. You have to have more rigorous performance conversations. You have to have probably better. I mean, we've seen this in our own team. We have to have better project management because there is less transparency and visibility of each other's work when you're not remote, but that is overcomable by systems and processes and, and, you know, good capacity to connect. So I think your term is probably a good one, (laughs) right? We'll put it on the shirt, but here's my, here's another question with, along with lazy leadership. One of the reasons I think the overseer model is so terrifying to me as a worker is that it assumes that I do not believe in the mission. Mm -hmm. So the lazy leadership is also that like, if you can't get people to see the vision of why they belong there Mm -hmm. and what their purpose is in the system, then you haven't done your job is my vision of that is like, that's not their job actually to find mission inside of your company. It's your job to find them the spot that feels the most meaningful, highest and best for them. So if you need them to be under your thumb at all times, in order for them to find purpose at work, you actually have bypassed the entire reason that you even need people there, (laughs) you know, because get a robot to do that then, you know? Right. Well, totally. And I think you're tapping into, you know, what the theory X McGregor, that was his name. Nice. But theory X, they're right. That's a lot about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, right? Can I, can I believe that my workers will find their own purpose? Can I help them understand why what we're doing is important? And then can I give them some room to, to do it the way that they want to do it? I think, um, I think that's important. And I think in order, in order to change, you know, everybody's talking now in COVID about hybrid work arrangements and, and, you know, offices are closing. And, and I think for society that raises a lot of exciting issues, like, what are we going to do with these empty office buildings? Can we put homeless people in there? You know, can we, how can we create better society? But I also think it's going to require a very different way of building community with people within the organization and also building culture, you know, because it is a little harder if if you're not walking by the hydroflask display or, you know, seeing the values on the walls, like you do have to um, find other ways that you can connect to the culture of the organization. And I've talked mm-hmm. to a lot of people who have joined their companies during COVID in a hybrid way. And they, it is a little harder to figure out like, what is this, com- how does this company roll? You know, but I, but I don't think that's insurmountable. So, so yeah, I, I think the notion that to do good work, we have to all be in the same place is flawed and needs to go. <laughs> Garbage. It needs to go. Garbage. <laughs> Yeah, jettison that one for sure, along with lazy leadership. Boom. Yes. Boom. Um, Done. Great. What else? Well, it's connected, but I'm thinking about work flexibility. Needs to go? You mentioned work flexibility needs to go. 
<laughs> no, it needs to come oh. like work, work <sighs> happening between the hours of nine to five or whatever, mm -hmm. and, and not have, and not being able to like leave your station during that time. It needs <laughs> to go like that yeah. needs to go. And I think it largely has gone. Like, I don't see very many workplaces anymore where, you know, a shift work, of course, is a little bit harder, but most professional settings are much more flexible than they were certainly when I was young around like, you know, having to go to doctor's appointments and stuff. But I think there's still a lot of shame and a lot of assumptions that come with that, you know, that that underpin a mindset, again, of people being more like machines, where the, the expectation is if you have too much flexible time, you aren't going to get your work done, or you're not going to be able to modify that in your downtime or whatever. And I think flexibility is such an important currency to human beings right now that the notion that work gets executed between certain hours only is is um, dead. Mm, I don't, I so don't think good. What do you think about the idea that <laughs> that if people get flexibility, I just feel like there's a little bit of fear there that if they get flexibility, then they will rise up and they won't do any work and they will just come for you as the leader, you know, like that everybody's just 37 minutes away from mutiny. Yeah. If you give them an inch, they're going to ask for a cup of milk, you know, or whatever the book mm -hmm. is about cookie, you know, but that's, <laughs> that also is embedded inside of not trusting your people. Yeah. I think not giving the benefit of the doubt of that. The reason we work here is larger than just pieces that we do. Right. And this idea that, that I'm just looking to overrun your business is such a fearful place to stand instead of looking at it in terms of like, what can this person do to enhance our business? If I just give her a little bit of space to breathe, why is it so hard for larger corporations to get? I feel, I feel like small to midsize, we can have that conversation and there is a little bit more, but once you scale up a little bit, it seems like that just disappears immediately. There's no like, there's, there's no slight change in that one. It just goes. I, yeah, I think you're right. And it's funny. It's interesting that you're saying that the, that there's an assumption that like, if I let you have full flexibility, like you rise up against, I actually don't, that could be an assumption and I, and I can picture that in some scenarios, but I also think, and I think another assumption that drives that behavior is you'll be a slacker. You know, <laughs> if, if you're, yeah. If yeah. you're not working the hours that I know you're working, then you'll be a slacker and I won't be able to measure your performance. And so it kind of goes back, doesn't it, to lazy leadership because it's like, well, I need to know what I expect of you in order to measure yeah. your performance. And so I got to do that either way, but it's certainly easier if I if I know, if I can say you work nine to five, then I can be like, no, she came to work every day at nine to five, but that doesn't mean you're doing a good job. Like yeah. so many people are retired on station, yeah. you know? So I think a lot of it is also about like fear of slacking, um, that people are not going to bring forward their best work. And what you're saying is very powerful because you, you're you talking a lot and it, it makes me think about our generational differences a little bit because I hear in your voice, like, if I care what we're doing, I'm all in, like, I'm mm. going to work hard. Mm. And I think that is a millennial point of view, like, give me the <laughs> reason why this work matters, and I will have at it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think my generation, the baby boomers are like, but will you though? <laughs> you know, hear me, hear me as the <laughs> spokesperson for millennials right this minute. Yes, <laughs> really will. I know. And I, like, I know you will. And I, but the irony is that baby boomers, you know, like most baby boomers, I know we work our asses off. Like, yeah. we, you know, there's not a question of, of slacking. And I guess for me, that's where these beliefs we have about people 
mm-hmm. are perhaps what per, what persists this because we we saw it in COVID as well when people started getting help from the government with wage yeah. replacement and things like that. And then when workplaces started reopening and everybody was saying, oh, all these people, they don't want to go back to work. You know, that was the assumption. That's what the media was even saying. Like people don't want to work anymore yeah. because now they just can get paid from the government. And they were wrong. Like yeah. that, is, that is that has not persisted. People are back to work. Employers are having trouble finding enough workers, not because everybody's at home eating bonbons, but because they found better <laughs> jobs, you know? So, yeah like motivation in, you know, with, with the vast majority of people, we want to work, we want to contribute, we need to make money to support our families. And so when we look at like what people need from work, it's a flawed assumption, which is that it without pressure, people will slack off. And I think what you're saying is like, without, if it, if it matters, I won't slack off. If it doesn't matter. And if I feel useless, yeah, I might slack off a little because who gives crap. Yeah. Well, and will you say a little bit more about, because we had many conversations during COVID of like, they want to go to work totally. because it, work is not just about the money. Yep. It is number one for sure. But there are other reasons to go to work. And yep. I would argue that there was actually a massive famine essentially of that, of those things during COVID. And that is why people also are looking for meaningful work because exactly. they were like, oh, wait, if I get enough money to meet my basic needs, then I get the freedom to go look for the things that I actually do want to go to work for. So you say a little more about that. Well, yeah. And it makes me think as you're talking, it makes me think about maybe this is an artifact of good business, which is that like money, I think the artifact is that money is the primary motivator or the only motivator. I think that's an artifact that has to go. Now, let me caveat that a little bit, right? Because in a capitalist society, yes, we have to make money. Everybody has to make money to secure food, water, shelter, safety, and security for the people they support. That is true. And it's not enough for full fulfillment of who I want to be as a human. So money is only a part of the equation. So Mm -hmm. if we were to jettison the assumption that people only work for money, then we can look at the other six reasons why we go to work and we can say, oh, how can I leverage this motivation for people in addition to money? Because we know that if people are paid fairly and they can make their meet their basic needs, money falls in priority. We just know that that's true from research, not just Mm -hmm. ours, but other people's research. So again, it's not that money is a non-issue. We can't pay people poorly, not enough to support themselves. Um, But if we are able to pay them um, enough to meet their basic needs, then then that's cool. It falls, it falls in priority, (laughs) you know, and then people start looking to say, okay, what else about this work matters to me? Is it the social connection that I feel, which can make working from home a bit challenging? So how am I going to accommodate that? Is it the contribution that they're making? Is it that they feel supported in taking risks? Is it that they have flexibility and they can make their life work? We need to get away from, we need to jettison the mindset that money is a good motivator and that people are working only for the money. Yeah. There's too many other human needs that work fulfills, especially if we're working full time, Mm -hmm. that work that employers really need to think through because they can meet some of those needs, at least partially for workers. And when they do, we see motivation, inspiration, connection, high performance. We we see that, the companies that are doing that. And of course, in particular, like paying attention to culture, which brings me, I know I'm giving you probably too many things, but it brings me to another thing I love this. that has to be jettisoned. Yes. Which is that culture is an extra. Yeah. That paying attention to culture is extra. It's not on your dashboard. It's just like a little, if you're really kicking it and making a ton of money, then yeah, you can afford to pay 
to, to think about culture. It's like, that is just flawed. We need to, we need to jettison <laughs> the idea that culture is tertiary to business results yes. because it's not, it's central to business results. I totally agree, obviously. Um, but can you take us back in a time machine a little bit? How the heck did we get here that we think that that is a, why are we still fighting that fight? It's like hard for me to even dredge up empathy at this point about people who don't think that culture is central. Mm. I know I got to check that because empathy is like how we do things here, but I'll work on it. But it seems like a no duh to me. Um, so how did we get here? Yeah. Damn if I know, May. Um, no, that's <laughs> not true. I do know. I do know. We got here because profit is all powerful. And when profit is the only North Star, if, it, if profit is the only thing that we measure and that we look for in, in business, then we can't afford to really look at anything else like culture and employee engagement because all we're counting that matters is the bottom line. And that's how we got here. And, and you know, I'm sure people will listen to this and think, oh my gosh, you know, she's anti-capitalism. Like, no, I run a for-profit company. I am for capitalism, I guess, but capitalism has some dark sides to it. Yeah. And we know now, and we didn't always know it. I mean, back in the industrial revolution, I'm sure. And then even like when I was growing into the world of business, we, we thought that you could get, I think there were mindsets around business that if you focus on profitability and you ran a generally good company, that the other thing that people would feel happy working there, they'd be able to have their families thrive and it would all work out. And now we know better. Um, because that isn't how it works. You can be making a lot of profit and some of your people are not thriving because you have too much wage inequity um, or your business is bad for the communities in which they operate. And so we, we have to elevate things alongside profit um, mm -hmm. that, that matter and that we count. But I don't think that, that our historical models of business really considered that. I love going to Mao Church. <laughs> um, check my thinking about this. This might be something that I just made up. I don't really know. <laughs> Check my thinking. Work was different during when that model was made. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't as big a piece of our lives. It wasn't yes. meant to be. It wasn't meant to be actually the thing that I'm describing in my millennial head and voice of like, I need to find meaning here and I need to give a crap about it in order for me to show up. And that actually me showing up a hundred percent is like, is the best thing I can do for the business at hand. I don't think that is, I don't think that's how, what my grandfather felt about his job. I think my grandfather clocked in and clocked out, which is why I think that term even exists. It's like, yeah. I don't clock out from you. Like, I'll just admit it right now. I don't, I clocked in five years ago and I have not clocked out. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but that's on that purpose. Not that good. No, but that's on purpose, right? Cause I'm like showing up. I, I have thrown myself into the deep end with you. And in order to show up on Monday, I better have done some creative thinking Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so that I can show up better. But that's my understanding of work right now. That is not, I think that's why those models don't mesh with each other is because I'm, I see myself as a whole person going to work, but the old model of work does not see the whole person as necessary. Yeah. They see a whole profit as necessary, right. but I might have been making that up. Maybe work has Maybe I was just sold a bill of goods a little bit on that of like, it's different now. It's different. Settle well, down. there is so much that's changed, May. I mean, and I appreciate you saying that. And I, I think it has changed. And But I don't know fully why. 
um, because I think of my parents as well, who would be probably like in between older boomers and almost like the veterans, you know, who mm -hmm. like your grandfather probably would be more in the veteran or the, um, yeah, the greatest boomer. generation. Yeah, yeah, the greatest generation. And, um, and so I think that, yes, you're right. I think work had different boundaries, even professional mm -hmm. roles at that time that were more clocking in and clocking out. It also really disproportionately emphasized men who in many cases had yeah. stay-at-home wives or yes. partners so so the home work integration worked better in many yeah. ways although it didn't in some ways because we know we had women who were disempowered women who didn't have careers and women who felt you know kind of dead-ended in the home and so then we had women's liberation um and i think you know really it's when i think about it, it's like post-world war ii actually where national production increased so much and women mm -hmm. began to enter the workforce mm -hmm. because they had to that that then we ended up in different a different frame of what work meant and in the 50s and 60s i think it was very much like work was really important men mostly did it but women were starting to enter and then in the 70s and 80s was i think that's when we really lost our way like where work huh. became from an identity perspective, it came the end all be all. We had there was a lot of mythology about women can do anything, we can work too. Yeah. Um, we had the birth of high tech and companies mm -hmm. that actually weren't producing anything. They were <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, they were ideas that yeah, were yeah. that didn't there was nothing being made. I mean, yeah. until like the, the chips had to be made, right? But there, it was like the idea, the economy of ideas and of technology. Mm. And then it became, then identity started coming in of, oh, wow, work is everything. And now, of course, we have most often both people in a couple are working. Mm -hmm. um, work is a, as popcorned out as a much bigger part of our identity where, you know, we've seen, of course, you know, the U.S. on a per capita basis has the least time off of most industrialized mm -hmm. nations. So like workaholism and work yeah. addiction is a real thing in yeah. our culture, which which elevates actually the importance that work plays in our lives, which makes me, that's why I'm apologizing because it's like, oh no, I've sold you a bill of goods. Like that <laughs> no. who you are, like you have to be working with this identity piece. Um, so it's it's touchy. How do we navigate that and get all that good motivation, but also not have it take over your life? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Well, that brings me to something that I would like to jettison. I think there is still a lot of stigma around leaders resting. And that's got to go because that's affecting everybody. Yeah. <laughs> like it's all very fluffy. I still feel like, I feel like we still talk about it as this luxury item that once you have worked hard enough, then you can rest. Once you have done enough, then you earn it. Once you are at a certain pay grade, then you can go. Mm. Then you get four vacations a year, right. you know, or like, oh, I checked and you can hear it like, oh, I'm checking email while I'm on the beach. Why? Stop right. checking email on the beach. It's bad for your computer and stop doing that. You know, like you can't even see the screen, knock it off. And it's bad for your people. Yeah. So I think as a, as a millennial, I'm like watching all these leaders and I'm watching my fellow millennials learn it and then pattern it of mm. being like, Oh, I'm at my kid's thing, but I'm also checking email. Oh, don't worry. I'm out of pocket today. I mean, I do it all the time. I'm like, just go for a walk. Yeah. Just don't be out of pocket. Just leave your phone there. Like why? And I think it has to do when you go bottom top, it's like that I'm, I want to prove that like, no, I'm still here. Like I'm still, I am still a team player. I'm like, I'm part of it. I'm resting, but like, I'm not really resting. I'm with you. It's like those birds that like only sleep with one side of their brain, you know, they're like, I'm still flying. It's cool. I'm still headed. I'm good. It's good. But don't worry. Only half my brain's not working. 
right? Like that's not, it works for birds, but it doesn't work for us. And the reason we've learned it is because it's like, once you become a leader, you get more time, you get less time being with your family. Only part of the time is actually a badge of honor. I'm not really sure what the messaging is or what the part of it is, but I think it's got to go. (laughs) It's not helpful. No, no, I agree. And, and it's really been exacerbated, I think, by what we see happening with women, mm-hmm. with women in particular in the workplace around parenting, because we have women who are carrying the invisible workload at home, and they're also feeling that they always have to be working. Um, and so they're just completely burned out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me, the rest thing is a really powerful myth that has to go, which is the myth is really that we don't need to rest, that our brains are eating. <laughs> but the other myth I think that has to go is like that pleasure is bad. Yeah. Like that, that work is good and pleasure is bad, um, which is what partly keeps people from taking their vacations or taking their maternity or paternity leaves or, or like you said, leaving their phone at home, you know, when they're at the soccer game or turning it off. Um, yeah. And I think that that's all about a mythology that we've built up over many years, which is that good work means um, you sacrifice your self for yeah. that work or that purpose or that effort. And that that's what good looks like. And there's a lot yeah. of comparing, comparative shaming in the world of work too, around like who's working harder. Yeah. You know? um, and it disproportionately favors certain people. It also is like where a lot of the things I know this, I know this is something that bugs you like in the, <laughs> <laughs> and it bugs me too, but like in the executive coach arena and like, white male culture dominant place around um, achievement and what efficiency and motivation looks like. It's like, there's this story of, you know, I get up at four and I do 4,000 pushups and then I run around the neighborhood for two hours and then I meditate and then I have my three sausage espresso and then I go to work and (laughs) and, and, you know, which is a not real and B who is picking up the dog poo and making sure the dry cleaning gets taken and making sure baby's fed, you know, that's, that's the mom usually. Yeah. So there's like a bunch of constructs in there that are problematic that connect to what you're saying. Whereas the data tells us something different, which is that people, human beings do perform better when they have an off switch, when they get enough sleep, when they have space, like you said, for some creative thinking, they are able to do better, to perform better, to bring better ideas, but more resilience around hard things. And, um, and yet we don't act that way. So I think that the myth about hard work or more is better is, is one that I agree. It has to go. It has to go to, to have businesses be really effective in the long run. What keeps you from just saying every day at work, like, to other leaders. Do you want your people to be better? Do you want your business to be better or not? Yeah, it just seems so clear. I know they don't believe me though. Like they don't believe me, I don't think. And even even for themselves. And and you know, this is a tough one. And I and I look at my own patterns of behavior. I mean, you know how hard I work and Mm -hmm. how difficult it is for me to rest. And I I empathize with my leaders who say the same thing and they have, there's self-doubt, there's shame. Like if I don't work this hard, will it all work out? You know, if I don't do, leaders say to me all the time, I have to do more than my employees because they need to know that I understand their job. So they effort even more than what they ask of their employees because they want to prove that like it's doable. And, And also identity is very connected to hard work. And so we get caught in a little bit of a trap, which is like, I am good or okay if I'm, 
functioning at this high baud rate all the time. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, it's a different mindset to say, oh no, I'm good or okay at exactly the baud rate I'm at. And when I say no, or when I buy into rest, I am modeling healthy behavior that's good for my team. I think it, it's really a brave leader who can let go of their own insecurity to, mm -hmm. to be able to sit with that and be like, no, it's actually gonna be okay. And I mean, I've learned a lot about that with you all on my team, but I still work harder probably than I need to in mm -hmm. reality for the business to function well. Because there, there's another piece that underpins that idea of rest, which is that the assumption that more is always better. Totally. More what, money, more profit, more. What is the like deep, dark voice say about that? What is the deep, like, I am not worthy if I do not do this thing? Like, what is the very specific scary thing that's in there? Is it about that if I am not doing this, I am not seen as a strong leader? And if I am not a strong leader, then I don't deserve to be here? Like, what is the, what's the thing? It's a good question. I'm not sure, but I have to go back to the research from Brene Brown. You know, I think we are all really afraid of feeling like we're not enough. And so we hustle for worthiness. You know, as Dr. Brown says, we hustle for worthiness and we do it from the time we're in school. You know, I, I was so saddened. Um, I am always so saddened when I hear about another, you know, suicide of a young mm -hmm. person. And recently an athlete died, a Stanford athlete, um, a woman who was, when you looked at her story of her childhood and her adolescence and her college career, she was you know, a force of nature, you know, she was this mm -hmm. star varsity soccer player. She was a straight A student. She was, you know, I'm sure like to keep up all the things she did to get into Stanford, to stay at Stanford must've been a Herculean effort. She was beautiful mm -hmm. and she suicided midway through her college career. And so I think that it's not only in the workplace that we have a lot of mythology built up about what yeah. enough looks like. Enough is not enough. It's abundance enough has to be more than you know and i think that drives a lot of behavior that is uh, not about rest or pleasure but instead about proving worthiness i wonder where we went astray from equaling rest with care you know like if we really believe in caring for people that doesn't equal more <laughs> you know it doesn't equal more sweat and horrible work environments it equals rest and pleasure and quiet and space. That is what paradise has always been dressed up to be. It's right. time, you know, that's like, yes. that's as old as our country, that idea. I like, know. When it's you true. have worked hard enough, you get to go to this place of rest. Right. So right. we already know it's good for us. We know it's good for us, but it does seem unattainable. And then, of course, we have yeah. the situation where people wait, they defer those they defer the rest until a later time and then it doesn't come um, and they live their lives out you know um, on this treadmill and I, and I think it's um, extremely destructive and yeah and I believe it's also bad for business and I believe that we can do much better um, but in order to do so we have to jettison as you're saying our mindsets about what rest and pleasure do for us um, and how they actually can create better work not not worse work, not less productive. And I guess the other thing I would say is that another jettison is like, we have to stop thinking that work is only about work. It's also about identity yeah. Yeah. and it's about community and feeling part of something that matters. So, you know, just thinking of a job as a job is, is got to go because that mm -hmm. is in very rare circumstances is that the case for anybody anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
That one's a tricky one. That's yeah. a tricky one, I think. Um, in closing, here, here are my questions of how to solve all these problems. <laughs> Which would be great. A lot of artifacts of wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> If you're gonna solve these for us, Mo, that would be great. <laughs> I guess I can only speak from the millennial experience in the workforce right now, but say you're a millennial listening to this podcast and all the things that we want to jettison exist in your system and they're affecting you and you don't sit in a place of privilege and power inside of your system right this minute. What can you do? Like, what are you, what should you be asking? What things should you be pushing on? Or are you just in the wrong place? And before you solve the world's problems, will you just, one of the things I think is most powerful that you say, and you just say it so nonchalantly in our training sometimes is about what is the most expensive worker? What is the most expensive thing? Because I think it's not what people think it is. Mm. People assume that it's one thing and it is not. So, right. Well, you're talking about the most expensive thing for an employer is Mm -hmm. not actually to lose an employee, although that is very expensive, but it's much more expensive to have an employee working for you. Who's not bringing all their good stuff. You know, who's like, if you come to work may at 50% capacity week over week, month after month, then you become very expensive to me because I'm Mm -hmm. paying for you to only bring a small percentage of your greatness, you know, and you're brilliant. And I want your brilliance to come to work. I don't want you to be leaving that at home, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's expensive and it's not good for you. And it's not good for me. I think for the millennials that you're talking about and the Generation Zs, here's what I would say. I I would say, like, first of all, know the conditions in which you thrive, right? Mm. And recognize that, especially early in your career, but I think throughout our careers, we're always making trade-offs. We're, you know, there's seven things we need from work and and work, not every job can provide all of them. So if we know really clearly what, what is the thing that's the most important right now, then we can take a job and we can just accept that maybe it doesn't fulfill the other parts of our needs right now, but that's okay because it may serve other things, mm-hmm. you know? And um, and then the second thing I would say is continue to be brave in how you're talking with your employer about the way that they are fit for human life or not, because the, the employees who do care about culture and who want you with them, they are gonna be curious about, are they creating the conditions that thrive? And it doesn't mean you're gonna get everything you ask for, Mm-hmm. But your employer may not understand fully, like, you know, for example, I mean, we've talked about this. Employers, employees will say, I want flexibility. This happened to a friend of mine. After COVID, she and her staff, they work in the financial services in- industry. They asked their boss, they said, we'd really like, we've been working at home for two years. We really would love to have the flexibility to still work at home some. And he just shut it down. He's like, no, we're in financial services. We're going to be back to the office. And what he was assuming, they, she met with him and said, what, what do you think we're asking for? And he said, I think you're asking to stay at home full time. And he, she was like, no, we were asking if we could work from home four to eight hours a week. And we could rotate, <laughs> it. We could rotate yeah. it so we could cover each other's phones. And he was like, oh, that's all you're asking for? Like, that would be great. No problem. Right? But they were like at a completely different level of understanding of what they were asking for. So I think... It can be really helpful to the employer when the younger generation or when whoever it is says, this is what I think would really help. And then be ready to negotiate like a modification of that because they may assume the worst, you Mm -hmm. know, um, that you're asking for something extreme. Um, And most of the time you're not, you know, Mm -hmm. most of the time we, what we're asking for is reasonable in the context of the work. And I guess that's the other piece I would say to employers out there is like, remember that your work, your, your company doesn't exist unless you have really good people working at it. So figuring out the ways in which you're going to 
successfully activate their talents is your job. Mm. So if I was going to come to you and I say one thing that is not going to light you on fire and make you want to turn the zoom off, right? What is that thing that I can approach you with? And then if you are the employer, which you are, what is the thing that you're going to say back so that that interaction goes well? Mm. And if you could have a magic wand and this interaction goes as well as you can picture it, what are the two starters that those two people say? I think for the ask, I think the best that I would recommend is ask in a way that both reveals the conditions in which you thrive, but also acknowledges the needs of the business. So it would be something like, let's say you were coming to me, hey, Mo, um, I know that we we typically work in this way. And I've been noticing that, like, let's say, well, here's an example. Let's say you're you decided you wanted to work a four day week and I kept scheduling meetings on your fifth day, which does sometimes happen, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say you had noticed over six months that every single Friday I was asking to schedule meetings at that time. Mm -hmm. And so for you to come forward and say, you know, Mo, I I really am appreciating my four day week. Like, and I I wonder if we could talk about that. Like, is it impacting the business negatively? Or like, what are we learning from that? So first be curious. And then, and I've noticed there's this one sticking point which mm-hmm. is that in the last six months, three out of four Fridays, I've had to make that staff meeting that you keep scheduling on Fridays. And I understand that that's a really important meeting, but I wonder if there's a way that we can change that, right? Mm-hmm. Because the odds are, A, I haven't noticed because I'm like just assuming your 24-7 access to me and no problem. Yeah, you work four days, but not really. Mm-hmm. And I you keep saying I mean? yes. Yeah. So the assumption is there and I keep reinforcing that. Exactly. But, you know, I don't want to be judged or determined as being flawed for trying to make the business work. So you coming with some curiosity and empathy. And for the boss, what I would say is like, listen, get curious. So if you say, Mo, you know, the four day week thing I love and it's sometimes not really working. I need to Mm -hmm. be like, okay, tell me why. Mm -hmm. What's not working? Because the, the reality is we have a problem between us, which is that there's a meeting that's not fitting in in the four days that is landing on Fridays, which is a day you're not actually expecting to work. So what are we going to do about that? And I guess for the employer, what I would say is, you know, most employers want to make decisions that are the same for all their employees. And Mm -hmm. we certainly have to be able to create fairness, but fairness doesn't mean that it's always the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I have to be open to the fact that, you know, and I have a small business, so it's much easier for me, but if I had a bigger business and I had some people working four days and some, I'd have to have a story about why that made sense. And I'd have to be open to every employee's journey about that, which may Mm -hmm. be different, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So sort of tolerating that, and this is where HR doesn't help us sometimes. We can have flexibility with our rules as long as we're providing equity. And I think employers sometimes get trapped into all the rules have to be applied the same for every single employee. And it's like, no, that's not actually how it has to be as long as we can explain and clarify and communicate clearly why the rules are what they are and that they're, that they are customizable for the human beings mm-hmm. that work there. Mm, so good. Thank you, Mo. It's great to talk we, to you. We have landed on the fact that a lot of artifacts of good business have to be jettisoned. Gotta go. And yeah. they gotta go. And I think what would be really a fun next conversation is what do we replace those with? Mm. You know, yes. like what, what is it, what are the practices and the mindsets that have to be in businesses and organizations today that actually do create the conditions in which we thrive, which we've touched on some of those, but let's dig in to that. Mm, next totally. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, May. Thanks, May.